out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Unsanctioned Citizen. We are going to continue with Unsanctioned Your Mind, a reading series conducting here at the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. So I have a couple of announcements, just three exactly. The first is that uh, there will be a Substack promo drive. I am trying to get as many Substack uh, subscribers as I possibly can between now and the end of July. So I think I can get, um, I've already got more subscribers than I had. So I'm going to try to get at least another 470 more. So um, if you just go to the link that I'll put in the uh, in the comments sections towards the end of the program, um, I'll have that there for you. Also, Naomi Wolf will be joining That AI Show this weekend on Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. So we're really super excited to have her as our honored guest um, on That AI Show. I expect her to talk to us about all kinds of really important um, technical privacy uh, issues pertaining to women and the body. So that will be really great. Please attend. Uh, we'll, we'll love to see you there. Also, Justin Trudeau got the Rona. He's vaxxed and boosted, still got coronavirus. We want him to survive. We don't wish death upon him or that he is denied medical care in any way in Canada. Uh, we... We hope that he survives in all ways and, and is as well as a world leader. But um, maybe through this he'll realize that having the corona disease is not quite as... Um, it, the, the punishment does not fit the crime when it comes to sanctioning truckers or anyone else who would not take their vaccine. Because the results are the same. You'll still end up with coronavirus in some cases, just as Trudeau has and um no one should be suffering punishment for a bodily choice so that's my story and i'm sticking to it let me now turn to awesome canadian uh expose investigative reporter mr sam cooper who has uh produced this wonderful book willful blindness how a network of narcos tycoons and CCP agents infiltrated the West. We are going to continue with our public reading called Chapter 6, Project Fallout. Here we go. Peter Lee had to do the wiretap equivalent of stripping naked and standing in a public square. He was forced to explain at length that Chiptooth Koi and Tong Sanglai who were rumored to be childhood friends in Macau, but now enemies to the death, had taken out contracts on each other. Oh my. That sounds dramatic. Let's turn the page. In January of 1994, Tong Sang Lai visited Canada's commission in Hong Kong. He wanted to become a Canadian permanent resident by applying to Quebec's immigrant investor program. So in March... That year, Lai transferred the standard fee in Quebec's program 
350,000 Canadian dollars into the account. Um, hashtag 89-17AA-4. Levescu, Bebien, Geoffrien, and Montreal invest- Immigration Investment Firm Connected in Business and Immigration Dealings to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. At the time, Levescu, Bebien, Geoffrien was lobbying Chrétien to expand Quebec's millionaire migrant scheme throughout the 1990s. The firm would flood Asian investment into Chrétien Shawinigan writing. This was the backdrop behind thousands of applications from Hong Kong. But Tong Sang Lai was a very special case. A Macau Triad Dragon and VIP room operator, operator in a Macau casino. Lai was born in Guangdong in 1955 and had little education, but had risen quickly in the Shifong Triad. Unlike the Hong Kong tycoons with their English-tailored suits and statement-like, statesmen-like auras, Lai had a hard, cadaverous look and the dark eyes of a killer. With his stake in Macau's casino trade, he was positioned to issue death orders and broker with Chinese officials. He owned a junket company that operated out of Casino Pelota Basca, one of Stanley Ho's nine Macau casinos, and he ran the Fortuna VIP room, taking a big cut of Society uh, Turismo whatever, Macau's Baccarat rake. In Macau, Lai also owned real estate development, construction, automobile, and import-export firms that benefited his money laundering activities, according to police. But Lai's trade extended far beyond Macau. Police said he had sold Chinese-made arsenal Zaire and imported illegal labor and electrical products from the People's Republic of China. He even owned a cigarette brand in China and used his fling, uh, shui fong muscle to persuade retailers that didn't carry his tobacco. He also contracted for fire bombings and tenant eviction via arson and provided debt collection services for other casino VIP room operators and chip lenders. I'm going to take a pause here and invite some people. Invite all. All right. Boy, he also contracted fire bombings and tenant evictions via arson and provided debt collection services for other VIP casino room operators and chip lenders. That is such a big deal, I think. He was a really mean person. It was estimated that Lai had thousands of triad soldiers at his command in Asia, but he also had his eye on British Columbia's expanding casino industry. There was too much money in the Chinese-Canadian community to ignore... From 1990 to 1997, over 200,000 citizens migrated to Canada from Hong Kong, including about 70,000 in the investor and entrepreneur categories. Most of the migrants were from hardworking families, but Canadian intelligence found a very significant portion of gangsters in the investor stream. And while Macau had become the Las Vegas of the East, the triads wanted Vancouver to be the Macau of the West. Lai had a problem, though. In, Hong, in the Hong Kong Commission, a visa control officer named Jean-Paul Delisle was on his case. Delisle was in Canada's embassy in Jamaica in the 1970s, when Canada's government sent out confidential warnings on the Luik Lok and Five Dragons corruption cases. Uh, using the gangster vetting system designed by Gary Clement and Brian McAdam, Delisle flagged Lai in a few categories. 
He was uneducated but claimed a high net worth. He was in, cons- in the construction business in Macau. Lai had lots of charges related to triad activity, but no convictions. So Delisle needed more intel to complete his profile. He reached out to a few untouchables in the Macau police officers that he knew could not be corrupted. Delisle's source connected Lai to all the vice rackets in Macau. Heroin smuggling, prostitution, illegal gambling, loan sharking, extortion... As Delisle gathered intelligence on him in Hong Kong, Lai's immigration plan was stalled in Quebec. So Lai started to look for different routes into Canada and surveyed points of weakness on the West Coast. British Columbia, a natural resource and real estate economy as hungry for Asian investment as Quebec, was a no-brainer. According to a report cited in Lai's Canada Federal Court immigration file in July of 1994, despite Delisle's ongoing investigations into his triad associations in Hong Kong, Lai was able to lead a trade delegation of 16 Macau casino personnel into Vancouver with his entourage, including the special inspector of the Macau Gaming Control Board. Citing confidential records and a Vancouver Sun report, the federal court records say Lai's Macau gambling mission entered British Columbia as the province was conducting a review of its gaming policy. Among Lai's entourage on a July 12, 1994 visit were three known triad members and two people with criminal records, the records say. Lai may have had some interest in gambling opportunities in British Columbia. Meanwhile, regulatory changes were on the horizon in Macau casinos. In January 1995, the triad started to count down the months until China would retake Hong Kong and Macau. And growing uncertainty on the future of Asian criminal markets triggered a raise to share or secure shares of the Macau VIP rooms before Beijing took control. In August of 1995, representatives of the four Macau-based triads, including 14K, Shui Fong, and Big Circle Boys, formed a compact called the Four Pacificals to stand united against incursions from the Hong Kong-based triads. That's interesting. Lai was elected treasurer of the Four Pacificals, giving him a 5% cut in all Macau Casino VIP rooms and junket lending operations for Chinese whale gamblers. But the temporary peace started to unravel in 1996. Lai and the Macau 14K boss, a flamboyantly violent Lamborghini-driving thug named Chiptooth Koi, clashed over VIP room control. And in an odd twist, Vancouver police happened to be listening in on several triad wires, giving Canadian intelligence a front-row seat on Macau's turmoil. Canadian police learned that the 19, uh, November 1996 attempted mur- murder of Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Antonio Opolinero, the Macanese government chief of gambling security, triggered a historically bloody war for Macau multi-billion dollar underground economy. In a busy Macau intersection, two men on a motorcycle had raced towards Apolinario. Oh, that's that's Apolinario from now on. A big circle boy gunman blasted him twice in the face lodging one bullet in his jaw and sending the second bullet through his body and narrowly missing his spine. The police suspected the shooters had fled quickly to China. 
Apollinario survived and a deal was brokered by someone unidentified by Canadian police intelligence, but evidently with tremendous influence over Macau's casinos. To settle the conflict between Lai and Chiptooth Koi, 10 days of bloodshed would be allowed and the winner would take all VIP rooms in Stanley Ho's casinos. And that's how it happened. But after two weeks, the fighting just continued. And the early stages, the 14K, were winning. But there was too much criminal money at stake for the Shuing Fong to bow out. Already, many Macau police officers were on triad payrolls. And so Lai just hired more officers to side with him and turn the tables on 14K. Macau descended into chaos Streets rocked by grenade attacks, fire bombings, machete choppings, and drive-by motorcycle shootings. Oh my god. Police often found Chinese People's Liberation Army bullet casings on the ground, pointing to Big Circle Boy's assassins. In a few months, 14 people had died, including a nurse coming off of her shift at a Macau hospital. But here's the twist that, for my Vancouver model investigation, best illustrates the blindness and corruption of Canada's immigration system in the 1990s. Tong Sang Lai was ordering the hits in Macau, but from a safe distance. In 1995, when Lai learned his application in Canada's Hong Kong mission was stalled due to Jean-Paul Delisle's anti-triad vetting, he formally withdrew it. In May of 1996, he flew to Los Angeles and walked into Canada's consulate. There he made another immigration investor proposal, but this time through British Columbia's program. To support his application, Lai and a number of men from China wired funds from Hong Kong into a shell company in Richmond purported for a mining, event, a mining venture in Canada. And in a massive breach of national security, Lai's application through the Los Angeles consulate was approved in September of 1996, just after three months. Ottawa claimed that Los Angeles staff had not even checked for red flags from Delisle's vetting of Lai and the Hong Kong Commission. I researched Lai's court records in Ottawa, and they show that a Canadian official stamped approvals on Lai's Los Angeles consulate application documents, and Lai became a landed immigrant in British Columbia in October of 1996. He was ready for battle but 10,000 kilometers from the war zone, living with his wife and young children in the East Vancouver home that he had just bought in 1994 for $515,000. And in November of 1996, armed with just his cell phone, he called in his orders. In May of 1997, after six months of war in the evening rush hour on Macau's packed Roi de Praia Grande, a squad of motorcycles buzzed around a small turquoise sedan and shooters wearing dark visored helmets and seated back to back with their motorcycle pilots sprayed the small car from all sides, smashing out three windows. They had slaughtered all three 14K heavyweights. Two men were slumped over in the front seat and in the back left hanging forward and into his seatbelt was Chip Tooth Coy's bodyguard, the 14K's number two in Macau. In a two-year war that would kill dozens of gangsters, police, and government officials and innocents, this hit was the singular bloodbath that caused Macau's casino wars to spill into the streets and VIP baccarat rooms of Metro Vancouver. Wow. Dot, dot, dot. Detective Constable Patrick Fogarty got at least three lucky breaks. In 1997... 
Cars were disappearing from the streets of Vancouver like a strange twist on the biblical plagues. Fogarty was a smart detective with sandy red hair and a thick jaw. He looked like the type who might play the bad guy in an interview room, banging the tables to get suspects talking, but he was just the opposite. He always found you got better information by talking quietly to people. Fogarty was learning that Chinese criminals were taking over in Western Canada. They had mastered drug importation and distribution. They had connections and routes worldwide. In BC, they worked with Vietnamese, the Persians, the Hells Angels, and the new multicultural dial doper gangs, the United Nations and Red Scorpions. Wow. Some of the bikers were still doing well, but they didn't run Vancouver anymore. Fogarty knew of the men with an H.A. patch on their back sleeping on park benches. The Chinese gangsters had reached another level of wealth and sophistication, and for the most part, they didn't walk around giving off the steroid-popping thug-and-bling aura. It was often some quiet, business-like guy driving a Toyota Corolla, pulling the strings. Their only problem was in the 1990s was where to put the heroin proceeds. The drugs were easy to conceal and fast-moving, tight, and compact. The cash was gargantuan and slow. Once Fogarty had raided a Vancouver home and seized a stack of $4 million in $20 bills, but year by year he saw his targets getting better at moving narco dollars around the world, sending it out of Canada in a stolen car exports, layering it into casino and hotel developments in Vietnam and Cambodia, building towers in mainland China, selling real estate across Asia, wiring the funds back into Canada through import-export companies, Ooh. mixing it into casino chips in homes in Vancouver and Richmond and Burnaby. Though they bought cheap tear-down properties and built the crap out of the lots, building monster homes or multifamily townhouses. Fogarty and some of the Vancouver gang officers who understood money laundering knew that whole blocks of homes in some neighborhoods were built with drug cash. And each year, the gangs improved the narco infrastructure, weaving the heroin money deeper into BC's legitimate economy. So while Fogarty got his head around the plumbing of this rapidly evolving international laundromat, he was working his way up through the Asian organized crime section of the BC Coordinated Law Enforcement Unit. And in 1997, he got the chance to start Project Bamboo, his car theft and trade-based money laundering case. It started the way good operations always started for Fogarty, with good warrants. He got judicial approval to go up on three phone lines from the crew he believed was running British Columbia. It was North America's western branch of a cartel with worldwide ties, a triad he believed was affiliated with 14K out of Hong Kong and Macau. His targets were stealing multiple cars every day and shipping them out of Vancouver's crime-soaked ports and across the Pacific to Hong Kong. Wilson Wong was the number three on Fogarty's charts, and above him was his boss, Simon Chow, a man Fogarty knew to be a brilliant capitalist who ran pool halls in Vancouver. It was an oddly small and simple business line for a man who was constantly traveling to the United States, Hong Kong, China, Macau, Cambodia, and Vietnam. But Fogarty knew Simon Chow was really into big-time heroin importation, underground gambling in Vancouver, and casino junkets in Las Vegas and Miami. 
He had extensive loan sharking networks in BC Lottery Corporation's Richmond Casino, ran large-scale weapons trafficking and massive credit card fraud, and had business lines in Los Angeles and San Francisco. He had interests all across Southeast Asia, and he had a Vancouver lawyer at his beck and call. Fogarty was working on Project Bamboo when a call came in from Hong Kong in early June 1997. It was an unidentified man asking Wilson Wong for Simon Chow. Fogarty wasn't authorized to go up on Chow's phone yet, so his first lucky break was that the man from Hong Kong had to call Wilson Wong, only because he couldn't directly reach Simon Chow. The caller from Hong Kong was a Cantonese speaker and obviously highly respected, but he was speaking for people well above his pay grade. And right away, another huge break for Fogarty. Wilson Wong wasn't well-informed on the Macau situation. The Hong Kong man, identified in June of 1997 as Peterson Lai, an elite big circle boy, was asked, asked Wong if the phone was safe, and Wong said that it was. Big break number three. Peter Lee got comfortable on the line and asked Wong if he knew what was going on in the Macau casinos. Wong said he didn't. But in the most blatant way imaginable, he actually said, what war in Macau? When the Cantonese-speaking gangsters talked about criminal matters such as trading guns, they liked to use code words like little black guys. But for Peter Lee, explaining Macau's epic gang war wasn't something you could do in code words. Wong's ignorance of major events in Asia may, meant that Peter Lee had, do, had to do the wiretap equivalent of stripping naked and standing in a public square. He was forced to explain at length, that Chip Tooth Koi and Tong Sang Lai, who were rumored to be childhood friends in Macau but now enemies to the death, had taken out contracts on each other. Wilson, don't you even read the news from Hong Kong, Fogarty said to himself. You made a huge mistake. Thanks very much. So with the Macau situation thoroughly explained, Peter Lee told Wilson Wong that he had to get a hold of Simon Chow urgently because there was a contract out of Hong Kong that the boss want, would want to be part of. Tong Seng Lai was somewhere in Vancouver, and all they had in Hong Kong was a few digits from Shi Fong's boss and a Vancouver cell phone number. If the big circle boys in Vancouver could find Lai and execute the contract, Peter Lee said someone very high level in the Asian casino world would pay Chow, Hong Kong, $1 million and be and beyond that, it would be very good for the outlook of the Big Circle Boys. In the second week of June 1997, Fogarty read up on Ottawa's intelligence reports and the RCMP Commission liaison in Hong Kong. It was confirmed 14K and Shui Fong were in a massive war, and Chip Tooth Koi planned to wipe Shui Fong out of Macau. It was further confirmed that Lai had circumvented Canada's immigration system. Fogarty talked to Cheryl Shapka, the triad expert from the Canada Border Services Agency. Shapka's boss was apoplectic. Someone in Immigration Canada had messed up royally, or worse, opened the door to lie in the Los Angeles consulate despite lies red-flagged application in Hong Kong. It appeared to be corruption, Fogarty thought. There was some suggestion that someone in Canada got paid off, but that was an issue for someone else. Now it was confirmed that Lai and his family were in Vancouver. Dark forces in Hong Kong wanted Lai dead, and possibly his family too. Fogarty had a duty to warn Lai his family was in danger and prevent the Macau Casino bloodshed in Vancouver. 
And he now had evidence to go up on Simon Chow's phone and Tong Sang lies. Project Bamboo was on the side burner and Project Fallout was underway. It was a police intelligence gold mine. Bogarty was listening to the world's largest criminal organization command structure hashing out the next de- steps in a gang war with geopolitical trade implications. And he would learn how high tentacles of the triads directed from China and Hong Kong reached into Canada, the United States, and beyond. Phone tap showed the first order of operations for Wilson Wong was to track down Simon Chow, who was doing business in Las Vegas. Simon Chow accepted the contract on live. Fogarty's intercepts showed, and Chow ordered Wilson Wong to use all means ne- needed to track down Lai's residence. This was a sobering moment for Fogarty, still a relatively young Canadian cop. He was surprised to find Wilson Wong had moles in a number of Canadian travel agencies and phone companies, and apparently even government offices. It was no problem for the Chinese cartel to look into Canadian driver's license records. The Big Circle boys were able to peer into Canadian residents' lives and travel schedules and track them down if they wanted to. Still, by the end of 1997, the Big Circle boys had not yet found Lyon in Vancouver. And then some mind-blowing phone calls had occurred. As the war raged in Macau and its economy started to suffer, the Chinese government appeared to take an interest. And on June 30th at 11.05 p.m. in Vancouver, Tong Sang Lai called a Mr. Kwok in mainland China. Kwok appears to be the mediator between the two triads, Fogarty wrote in his Project Fallout report. Lai is very respectful towards Kwok. Lai has ordered his men not to take any action until after July 10th. In Fogarty's mind, Mr. Kwok obviously was a person of immense influence. It was something that citizens in the U.S. and Canada just couldn't grasp, China's government was directing the gangs. Unbelievable. There were thousands of people involved in this gang fight. And someone in Beijing had decided enough was enough. It would be like the White House brokering the five families to quell Italian mafia disputes in New York. Or Ottawa making deals with the Hells Angels and the Rock Machine in Montreal to end the Quebec biker wars. As Fogarty listened... He heard Mr. Kwok tell Tong Sang Lai there was a person whom Lai must call. Mr. Kwok said that Lai had to talk to this unidentified person, a new ringleader riding into the 14K every two or three days. The next day, three Shui Fong Triad members flew to Vancouver to join Lai. Fogarty knew that these were bodyguards and he made sure that they were flagged and rejected by Immigration Canada. In response, Lai made calls to the United States looking for more men. One thug was on his way to San Francisco for business, and two others were working in Las Vegas. A customer in an unidentified Las Vegas casino owed Chui Fong $10 million. Lai's men informed him, so Lai told them not to bother coming to Vancouver, but to stay in Las Vegas and collect the debt. And in early July 1997, there was another shocking call for Fogarty. Lai called us to a source that Fogarty believed was a mole in the Macau police headquarters. Lai was checking into reasons Immigration Canada had rejected his soldiers at the Vancouver airport. 
Fogarty believed that Lai's own case, he was able to get red flags erased from his name in Macau using the contacts in the police and the judiciary. But something in Lai's corruption web had gone wrong. His mole had found that a book of triad hierarchies that should have been erased was still in use by untouchables in Macau police triad units. So everyone is there. There are 28,000 odd pages. Anyone who is slightly connected is in there, what the source told Lai. One after one, no one is missed. So troublesome, Lai sighed before hanging up. The contract on Lai's head was in flux. It wasn't clear to Fogarty whether the final order from Hong Kong would be for Lai's death, a kidnapping of his wife and children, a firebombing on his home, or something less lethal. But negotiations in Hong Kong, China, and Macau appeared to favor Lai's continued existence. Simon Chow was waiting for a photo to arrive from Hong Kong that would identify Lai's home. And meanwhile, the Vancouver province scored a front-page scoop. The newspaper revealed the scandal of Lai's passage into Canada through the Los Angeles consulate, and even printing a photo of Lai's East Vancouver residence. Wilson Wong believed the media heat would make the contract on Lai harder to execute. But Simon Chow was zeroing in. Fogarty and his team started to pick up calls between Chow and a gravelly-voiced man named George. They traced George's phone to a Vancouver apartment building. And Fogarty put surveillance on him. Fogarty talked to the guy, to the building manager, who pointed to a suspicious Caucasian man, a guy who lived with a woman in the apartment and liked to sit in his unit's street-facing balcony in his underwear. Fogarty reviewed his team's surveillance note and George was a fat 35-year-old man, about 220 pounds of brown receding hair and a tattoo on his upper arms. In mid-July, Chow and George were seen sitting in a car in front of the apartment building talking for a long time. And they also talked on the phone about two things and some little black eyes. One is uh, 47 with a pistol grip and one is a uh, Tech 22, George said. Okay. Can you get, like, the shorter, Chow said. Fogarty almost had to laugh when he read the transcripts of the calls between George and Simon Chow. It was so clearly a dumb guy talking with a smart guy. George was a perfect example of the knuckle-dragging thug who lived and died by the gun. He wouldn't last. But Simon Chow was entirely different. He was always evolving himself and recreating. It was like watching the organized crime version of a butterfly coming out of the cocoon. Chow exemplifies a rare type, an extremely intelligent transnational gangster in the middle of his transformation into a tycoon. The last week of July, Peterson Lee called Chow from Hong Kong. The person had ordered that Lai would live. With a warning, Lee said. A firebomb or stray bullets would do the trick. And Peter Lai added to Chow, the person will be traveling to Cambodia and had said if any of the younger big circle boys had problems with the police in Vancouver, they could be sent to work in his Cambodia casinos and hotels. So that was that. Hong Kong had given the final order and the exit strategy. On July 25th at 3 a.m., the Vancouver Police Department dispatcher reported a drive-by shooting at Lai's home. 
2205 Fraser View Drive. There were four shots, but Lai's family was not inside the house. At 3.38 a.m., Simon Chow called George. Hi, how many tequila you drink? Four. Quick pop? Yeah, quick shot, George said. F that, hit me real good. Both Simon and George laughed. So, everything fine, right? Chow asked. Yeah, um, I'm going to go get rid of the worm in the bottle. You know, the bottle? Yeah, George. You know what I mean? Yeah, George, that's fine. And minutes later, Simon Chow called Peter Lee in Hong Kong. It's done. It's done already. I thought that's the place, but just to make sure, I drank four glasses. Oh, this is stupid. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> oh my God, gangsters are dumb. Uh, dear. For Fogarty, there still was a question of whether Hong Kong would call in a more deadly follow-up. The contract was hanging. It seemed that payment was not coming to Simon Chow in Vancouver, and the person that Fogarty called Mr. Big was not easy to track down. After Lai's Vancouver home was shot up, the unidentified man behind the contracts had traveled to Shenzhen, and on August 4th, he was in Vietnam. Peter Lai told Simon Chow to be patient. On August 6th, Mr. Big's son would be holding a grand opening for a new casino in Vietnam. I told him people on the other side would have been waiting for money, Peter Lee said to Chow. He says he'll get it from the casino when the casino begins business. But the Macau gang wars seem to be winding down. Canadian federal court records on Tong Sang Lai's case cite a cryptic report from the Vancouver Sun. Said on August 7, 1997. Stanley Ho informed Hong Kong media. The wars would end in three weeks. And Fogarty's project fallout files concluded with some stunning insights. In Macau, the new leader for the 14K, Market Y, had been installed to replace Chiptooth Koi. Koi's penchant for high visibility hang- gang hits was bringing way too much heat on Macau. Y was openly criticized Koi and has arranged to work in both Shuifang and the Sunyi Triad, Sunyi On Triad, in an attempt to end the battle in Macau, Fogarty Report says. This has been done with the support of the Chinese government. So Fogarty concluded, due to the intervention of Market Y and his cooperation with the Shuifang Triad and the Chinese government, it would not be in the best interest to have Lai and his family killed. So for my Vancouver model investigation, Project Fallout provided powerful evidence of direct connections between China's government, the Macau Casino Tycoons, and the Triads. And again, I have to hammer this point, assessments from the Sidewinder report that were scorned in Ottawa power circles are supported by Canadian police wiretaps. China's government is in fact controlling the drug cartels. In the aftermath of Project Fallout, Simon Chow and his hitman, George, were eventually convicted in the 1998 murder of a man named Vikash Chand. Chand was shot seven times while hanging Chow's license plate at a Vancouver car lot. And media reports continue to see Simon Chow as the key player in the 14 case hung for Tong Sang Lai. But my investigation of Kwok Chung Tam's 
immigration file pointed to a different interpretation. Simon Chow was the number two for the big circle boys, and Tam was the boss. The interesting fact that I learned in this whole thing is that Tam, the one who allegedly tried to do lie, Cheryl Shapka, the Border Services triad investigator, said in an email to Vancouver Police, Tam is big circle boys, as you know. So it's all connected, it's all Chinese, and it is all CCP. Ugh. That is the fateful conclusion to reading this chapter. I'll just read this one sentence again. China's government is, in fact, controlling the drug cartels. I just want to hit that home. So that is the conclusion of Chapter 6. We'll be returning tomorrow uh, with Chapter 7, The Casino Diaries. Continuing Sam Cooper's Willful Blindness. Don't forget, um, check out my Substack promo and subscribe. Uh, Naomi Wolf will be on that AI show on Saturday. And yes, Trudeau got the Rona. So with that, I'm just going to say thank you guys for listening. All the, all Joshua, Bloody, Joe, Jack, the Wanderer, and Towering Pink Elephant. I'm so glad you stopped by. Yay! All right. Come back tomorrow at 7.20 and there will be more. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.